Just a quick message before the episode gets underway. The Aurora Renewables Summit London is returning on the afternoon of Wednesday the 26th of June. Book your ticket now to hear from leading experts in the energy industry as they assess the opportunities and challenges within the UK and the wider European renewable sector. You will also benefit from unparalleled networking opportunities. We look forward to seeing you there. The world is just a lot more volatile, right? And it's not energy sector specific, but we've got such an incredible challenge in Australia and globally about the scale of investment we need to get to net zero by 2050. Hello and welcome to Energy Unplugged by Aurora. This podcast features various experts from Aurora having in-depth conversations with key industry leaders, policymakers and academics from all over the world. It explores the hottest topics across the energy market and gives a unique perspective on major energy issues. Welcome to Energy Unplugged. I'm Hugo Batten, Managing Director of Aurora in APAC. We're very much looking forward to today's discussion. We have Ben Barr in today. He's the Chief Executive of the Australian Energy Market Commission, the rulemaker in the Australian energy markets. Prior to the AEMC, Ben was Deputy Director General in the Queensland Department of Natural Resources, Mines and Energy. Ben's organisation analyses and decides on any proposed rule changes in Australia's electricity and gas markets, an increasingly crucial and central role given the widespread recognition that reforms will be necessary to deliver reliable energy to consumers efficiently throughout the energy transition. This conversation will largely focus on the reform agenda for the national electricity market in Australia. Ben, welcome to Energy Unplugged. Delighted you can join us. Thanks so much for having me, Hugo. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. We're also joined today by James Ha, Aurora's market lead in the Australian team and formerly at one of Australia's leading think tanks, the Grattan Institute. Hi, James. Hey, Hugo. Good to be here. Maybe let me start with the current priorities for the AEMC, Ben. The role of rulemakers is always a tough one, and I hear generally two criticisms of rulemaking bodies across geographies. They're either changing too much too quickly and we need more stability, or they're not moving fast enough and not keeping up with technology uh, and and those types of things. And sometimes those uh, criticisms are offered simultaneously. How do you think about rapid market evolution whilst also providing stability and consistency for investment decisions? Yeah, thanks, Hugo. That's a great question. And it's also, that's our job, right? So uh, <laughs> that's that's the environment we're in. And I, I don't think there's a day I don't wake up and I'm like, go faster. Uh, <laughs> so I, I totally I totally understand um, those dual uh, things that we need to balance because uh, the world is moving really fast. There's a lot to get on with in the transition, but you do need a level of stability in the regulatory framework for investors. And so uh, I think what we do at the Australian Energy Market Commission is make sure we're really deliberative about it. And sometimes you have to take risk and go faster. Other times you're making decisions in uncertainty and you want to build and adapt and build on reforms as you go. And I think the work we've done in uh, ancillary services markets, we call it the essential system services work in Australia, is a good example of building and doing the building blocks for reform in a really methodical way, but engaging industry as we go. 
And um, uh, other things, you've got to take a bit more risk. But actually what slows you down, uh, and it's important to do, is you've got to explain what you're doing uh, mm. to industry, to consumers, uh, because if you don't, uh, that's when uh, the reform agenda gets away from you. So it's a it's a challenge, but that's that's why we're here. Yep, absolutely. So Ben, one of the things I'd like to just get a little bit uh, get dive a bit deeper into is the fact that um, it's potentially going to be less of a smooth transition uh, than we might have naively hoped a little while ago. Um, and one of the the ways in which that's crystallised uh, in June this year was that we actually had the market suspended for nine whole days where the market operator had to step in, they had to centrally control dispatch of electricity. Um, and obviously this is you know, unprecedented in the NEMS history. Um, one reflection on this crisis is that, you know, events like this tend to provide impetus for major reforms and it's pretty early days since the crisis, but what do you think is going to be the long-term impact of the market suspension? Do you think it's going to accelerate transition to green? Do you think there's going to be more emphasis on, for example, system resilience? How do you think this is going to play out? Yeah, thanks, James. I mean, it's June feels like a long time ago, to be honest. A lot, <laughs> a lot has happened, and, and you're right. I think it was truly shocking, uh, to be honest, that the market was suspended and something that the, the cascading way that it happened in Australia, you know, starting out in Queensland uh, with, uh, with one, of, one of the mechanisms that's supposed to actually support stability of the market, um, you know, the cumulative price threshold, uh, then uh, administered pricing flowing through all of the different interconnected regions and then eventually AMO and Daniel Westerman and his crew at AMO deserve a shout out for the work they did uh, during market suspension. And, and in some ways they almost did too good a job because I think people are, uh, think that, um, you know, we're all back to smooth sailing now. And I, I agree if you're starting premise. Um, the world is just a lot more volatile, right? Uh, and it's not energy sector specific, but we've got such an incredible challenge uh, in Australia and globally about the scale of investment we need to get to net zero by 2050. And so that volatility outside of the sector, whether it's, you know, a war in Europe or high inflation or weather events that, uh, you know, you just have to accept that they're going to be more extreme as part of the norm. All of that makes those challenges harder. But uh, that crisis, which I think shocked us all in the sector, does offer you that chance for speeding up reform. And so we had an energy minister's meeting on the 12th of August, and it was it was a great meeting. And if you if you really want to, you can have a look at the communique. And it's a really significant communique. And I think the three key things uh, out of that, which bode well for long-term reform, are absolutely the need to speed up the transition to net zero in Australia. And you, you saw ministers... Uh, for the first time and for a very, very long time, uh, agree to change uh, the objectives for energy rules in Australia. So they're going to include an emissions objective into that. There's a coordinated national plan on the transition, which isn't done, but they've agreed to establish it, which is uh, a, a, a really important reform. So that's, that's one set of reforms, which um, I think is really important. Secondly, the second set is around... How do you smooth out the bumps in that transition? What further resilience do you need? And I'd, I'd load into that a number of things. You know, the, the capacity mechanism, which was kind of very controversial, I think, uh, before 
um, the crisis. It's still controversial, but for different reasons. But actually, mm-hmm. a lot of people who um, were saying Australia didn't need a capacity mechanism uh, in the lead up to the crisis, because we we're actually worried about other things in the lead up to the crisis, and during the crisis, said actually no, we need we need this change to the system. And I think that's really important. And we're doing work around uh, looking at some of those um, uh, rules to the system that should provide resilience and are they fit for purpose when when things are more volatile. So we're looking at things like retail of last resort schemes. We're looking at the settings around uh, price caps. Uh, Are they fit for purpose in this world? And that's really important. And the last set of reforms is to the gas market. And so... Um, you know, like in a lot of markets, the gas and electricity markets in Australia are, are linked, are very closely linked, and um, uh, they're not the same, though. And so, uh, you know, what ministers said was we need more transparency in that gas market. We need more options for the operator uh, to actually make sure there's enough storage in the system and actually make sure that they can see what's coming in the gas market. And I think all three of those sets of reforms are really important and also lots of momentum uh, to get on with them too. So that's good. Ben, just to follow up there and, and particularly your second point around smoothing the bumps, which we've talked a lot about on this podcast previously, Um we're recording this in late August, and, and just today, the ESU, the Electricity Statement of Opportunities, has has come out today in Australia, and this is a document AEMO, the market operator, put out uh, once a year that identifies risks to reliability, and, and reliability in quite a narrow way. I noted there you talked about resilience, which is obviously just more than you know peak megawatts at, at times of peak demand, um, and the ESU did flag that there were potential security of supply concerns moving forward. Do you think that adds weight to your second point and not necessarily that capacity markets are the solution to every problem, but that we do need some more guardrails around the transition to give people the tools they need to proactively address these issues? I think so. And, um, you know, what the statement of opportunities is supposed to do is is send a signal out to the market to say, Mm. best, actually, we're sure. And so, you know, I'm really hoping... Uh, it plays that role into, um, you know, people looking to invest um, uh, to make those decisions. But even if you make a decision to invest, it actually uh, takes a while to get your, your project built. And so more more guardrails to smooth out the bumps for customers, right? Like I don't think, you know, we live in a volatile world that energy shouldn't really ideally be a volatile commodity for customers, and it's tricky because you've got a regulated monopoly part, which is the networks, and then you've got a bit that's commodity linked, uh, usually, you know, whether it's coal or gas. And so how do you make sure that you get the investment in the timing that you need? How do you smooth out the bumps for customers so that it aren't wild fluctuations in the prices that they follow? I think that's a that's a job for uh, uh, anyone in policymaking in energy. And presumably you're looking across to Europe now and, and some of the statistics around rising uh, electricity prices and fuel poverty are, are really heartbreaking. You know, they're clearly a yeah. series of businesses that are going to struggle or go under in the next 12 months in, in, in Europe. And Australia hasn't got to that stage yet, yeah. but, you know, I'm sure, you, you know, you're following that closely. Yeah, absolutely. We talk, I mean, we particularly talk to Ofgem uh, in the mm. UK a lot, but we also talk to uh, similar regulators, uh, not just in Europe, but in the US and around the world. And and I know in, in Europe they're talking about, um, I think at the EU, big, big 
reforms potentially to the market in the next couple of days? Are we keeping a close eye on that? And Australia is very lucky in one sense. It's a very rich energy-intensive industry, but I think what mm. uh, the country, but what we learn uh, from um, the situation in June is like all global markets are very connected and um, the actual the electrons are tight everywhere, right? Uh, with mm. the situation in Europe and Russia and the Ukraine, it's actually getting energy uh, at all times, uh, not the peak demand challenge that we faced. Traditionally in summer, this was the issue with June, was usually you're worried about blackouts in Australia over summer, you're worried about peak demand. Uh, the problem we had in June was actually just energy, just getting enough energy out the door uh, during uh, all times of the day. And that's a, that's a different challenge uh, for Australia mm. than we've traditionally faced. Yeah, and to pick up on one of your earlier points there, Ben, about making sure that uh, regulations are, are fit for purpose, you know, particularly striking in that crisis was to see the link between electricity and gas and having a gas price cap that was led to a short run cost for gas producers that was, you know, for electricity generation from gas that was above the price cap in the electricity market seems to have played a role in, in precipitating that crisis. Um, just to turn to an earlier uh, outcome of, of, the, of the, the market suspension that, that you brought up, uh, you talked about the fact that we're now look, looking likely that there'll be an emissions objective or an, a sustainability objective built into the national energy objectives. And these, are the, um, these form the core principles that AEMC has to take consideration of when it's making rules um, and, and expanding the, the rules um, expanding the objectives so that they're not just focused on price, quality, safety, and reliability, but also taking account of emissions would be a first since the creation of the NEM. How do you think in practical terms, this change will affect the way that the AMC analyzes and makes rules in the markets? Yeah, thanks, James. It, it, is, it is a really profound change, uh, I think. Um, and, you know, the most significant change to those objectives uh, in my time in working in the sector. I think practically um, uh, for us, we've been grappling with, for the, with this for a while, even though the objective hasn't changed. Um, you don't make rules uh, in the absence of uh, what states and territories in Australia are driving mm. towards. And so the thing that really kind of spurred us on to this was um, we actually had settlement in Australia through all jurisdictions of net zero to 2050 at the back end of 21. And so um, energy ministers in Australia are the strategic policy setters. And so if they're all saying that's the general direction, then we as a rulemaker can take that into account, even though it's not explicitly in the objectives, but it's a bit of a workaround. And so what this will do, will be able to make us make it more explicit uh, and I think uh, not just us, but also uh, we're one of three market bodies uh, in Australia. We've got the Australian Energy Regulator uh, and AEMO, who's the operator. And I think it'll allow us all to have a consistent view of how we should interpret uh, those objectives. And so, you know, we've already, uh, for some of our rule changes, we're doing a rule change on hydrogen, hydrogen into the gas networks. And one of our criteria were actually it's got to help uh, decarbonisation. So we could take it into account, but... I think the rule change, and we need to see uh, the detail uh, that ministers agree to, will just allow us to be uh, far more upfront and transparent uh, with how uh, commissioners make those decisions. Mm. Ben, 
we, we've talked a little bit there about kind of the role of rule makers and, and the current crisis and what's come out of it. Maybe if we could flip now to some of the more structural reforms that are being suggested on, on the east coast of Australia. And I think the ones that are getting the most airtime are, are capacity markets, which we've touched on, transmission, getting it built on time, on, on budget, but, but not gold plating, and then nodal pricing. Just before we get in, into each of those in turn, and this is a bit inside baseball, but I always like to ask people like you, you know, as a market modeling company, where do you think market modelers help market modelers are helpful and unhelpful in informing debates around redesign? And I think in Australia, maybe modeling has been weaponized, not just in energy, oh, yeah. but, but no. generally. Um, and so often it is, I think, more unhelpful than than helpful. I mean, you stole kind of my answer in the weaponization of modeling to be honest. I love the inside baseball reference too. That's a, that's a very, I think inside baseball reference for the energy sector is right because it is all arcane uh, insider knowledge. And it's, it's still really important. Like market modeling is still really important, but it's a tool. It's not the answer. And I think mm. the weaponization you talk about is when people look to it to go, here's the answer. And really what, you know, what I like about it is it should force you to be upfront about the assumptions you're making around your policy design. And then it's telling you the direction of of, of travel that you need to go in and what the cost and benefits of some of those policy choices are. But it doesn't tell you what, you know, you can't use it as uh, this is the answer and this is the right answer. And, you know, usually you can't also say, and I guarantee the impact on customers is going to be X, Y, Z. I mean, I think that they're, they're where it, it gets taken out of context. And for us, though, it's a really, really important, and I like to talk about two things you need as a policymaker. You need the data that the modelling gives you, and you need a dialogue. You need a dialogue around what that data means and we need to go out and talk to industry and go, well, here's what the model shows us, but can you invest in this complex market design, for example, or is it too complex for you to invest? And one thing we're doing at the commission, which a market model doesn't tell you is, okay, you make a change to the market. What's the timing of that change? Mm. How do you actually implement it? How complex is it? And how confident are you in the implementation that you can actually get the benefits that your model shows you? So um, it, modeling can't give you that answer, but it can really, really inform policymakers about the trade-offs that they need to make. But again, um, you can't, it doesn't tell you what uh, the perfect market design is. No, I completely agree. Uh, the other thing I'd say, and, and this is a broader point, but you know, James in particular has been leading a lot of our work with with state governments in in Australia, and I think we're thinking increasingly hard about out of equilibrium outcomes. So when yeah. you use market models to model the future, and you know, everyone has perfect foresight and gets their cost yeah. of capital back, and you know, you, you, I think it's not just about testing what if the commodity price is different, but what if the market outcomes are just actually radically different from what your model says? And, you know, yeah. how much could that wind up costing the consumer both ways? And I think a great example of this, again, in Europe at the moment is that CFDs are actually paying back enormous amounts of money to British consumers, which no one thought about when they were yeah. writing, you know, hundred pound yeah. contracts to offshore wind two or three years ago. So, you know, that is an extreme outcome, but it is the markets are out of equilibrium. And I think that kind of analysis sheds quite interesting insight as well. I agree. Like it's, it's, you should be using it for scenario planning around, you know, it is a very uncertain world. And to think your model can um, get back to equilibrium with certainty, I 
yeah, you want you want to be forcing it to do things, which gives you a, a sense of um, uh, what the world, what the extremes of outcomes might look like. Mm. To turn then to the specific reform, so capacity markets getting a lot of attention have been uh, suggested by the Energy Security Board, and the initial designs were a little bit more like the the UK model, but it looks like state and federal maybe pivoting a little bit more to a French model, but those comparisons aren't perfect. Um, in your mind, what are the pros and cons of capacity markets? Um, and, and then, you know, particularly where Europe has tried out a couple of different models, have, have you guys looked across and said, you know, we like elements of this, we've seen this work well? You know, what other markets do you look to as, as, as good comparators or examples for Australia? Yeah. Um, first, yeah, I loved your, I listened to your um, uh, capacity makers and deep dive from a couple of weeks ago. That was great. That was, uh, I passed that one on to a few people, actually. I thought it was, I thought it was really good. Um, I think the advantages are, look, the advantages are with the scale of the transition and the volatility, um, how do you provide a bit more certainty around mm. investment that you need? I mean, that's, that's my layperson's uh, reason we're looking at it. And I think there was a, somebody made the point, um, uh, in that podcast, I think that Australia's kind of got, it's got capacity support already, right? So, you know, for those internationally, Australia's, you know, very proud of its energy only market, but states and territories have been investing in firming generation renewables in Australia via different sort of mechanisms for a while now. And so, um, uh, and I think that's a recognition of the scale of the challenge. And so that to me is, is the big advantage of uh, whatever sort of capacity mechanism you've got. Um, we haven't had a lot of investment in firming technology in Australia. We're getting, we're getting a fair bit in, in batteries, in large batteries, mm. short run batteries, but there are big challenges with the transition on particularly long duration storage and what you do around, around that when we have coal exit from the system. So that to me is its, is its big upside. It has downsides. And so um, there, are, there are lots of good things in the energy only market uh, in Australia that you need to consider when you're transitioning to capacity markets, like the signal it gives you for things like storage and demand response is actually pretty useful. And if you mm. look at, you know, the system operator's view on what we need to do to get to net zero by 2050, you need a lot of demand side response. You need a lot mm. of integration of uh, batteries at like quite staggering scale. So mm. um, how you do that and coming back to your other point, actually, the, you know, the way if you don't have a long-run contract at the moment on your renewable plant, you're doing pretty well out of the energy in your market. And um, there's a lot of complexity in capacity markets about what you do in auctions and what you do with derating of technologies, which you need to consider very carefully. And I'm at the commission and at the Energy Security Board, which we're, we're a member of, absolutely looking around at other markets, not just uh, in Europe, um, certainly Great Britain, Ireland, France, having a look at those markets, but also the US um, mm. uh, and also Western Australia. So we've actually got a capacity market in Australia over in the West there. Like West Australians keep telling us if only you'd done what we've done on gas and capacity markets, you wouldn't have these problems on the East Coast of Australia. Uh, but um, I think we're very conscious too that it's not a blank sheet of paper and you can't just pick up another market's 
model and apply it to Australia and think um, all your problems will be solved. You need to work through the specific problems in the Australian market. And it is a very, I think you pointed out, it's a very long, skinny, geographically dispersed network. Mm. And Townsville in the north is nothing like Turak in the south, right? So um, you really, you really need to think through those complexities when you're thinking about market design. And what and what problems you're trying to solve too? I think I think that was another good point um, you made in your podcast around um, what what how many problems do you want to solve with your capacity market? Being really clear on that. So Ben, I mean, capacity markets are a great insofar as we have overseas uh, comparisons that we can draw on and learnings we can take from other countries. But turning to the second of the big reform topics in Australia. Uh, it feels like a topic where um, perhaps no one seems to be getting it right, and that is transmission, and in particular, getting transmission built at the speed that's necessary to unlock renewable capacity, to replace the retiring thermal plant, but at the same time, making sure we get the infrastructure in, you know, in the right places uh, at the right times and ideally at the right price. Uh, we've seen a little bit of splintering in Australia over the last couple of years in terms of how different governments are approaching the approvals process for transmission. So historically, we've had the RIT-T test, uh, which is you know, the regulated um, test that, that allows the transmission network service providers to invest in new transmission. But there is talk you know, from the new federal government um, about uh, they, they have a $20 billion fund that they want to use to, to provide low-cost debt to, to accelerate transmission rollout. And the New South Wales and Victorian governments have gone down quite different paths and uh, given themselves powers to essentially bypass this test for, for transmission projects that they think would deliver consumer benefits, uh, distinct from perhaps the, the small social benefits or the social welfare that the RIT-T analyzes. So uh, how do you guys think about, about this challenge and about getting transmission in on time, but also without gold plating the system? Yeah, I mean that's the that's the sixty-four billion dollar question, right? So you want to bring <laughs> forward the transmission spend, but you still want to make sure it's efficient and customers aren't uh, paying for more than they need to. So it, yes, very easy to say and and hard to do. We were actually we've got a big review at the moment. It's one of our biggest pieces of work, and our real focus for the commission is on transmission planning and investment. And so that very issue around that regulatory investment test. And the entire economic assessment framework in Australia, it is really complex. Uh, you know, the time it takes you from a project being identified in what we call the integrated system plan to, you know, a sod turning and the steps that you need to go through. Um, it's not just the RIT-T, it could be a contingent project assessment or it might be um, uh, a cost-benefit analysis uh, as part of the ISP. Um, we're looking at what parts of that, um, you know, from go to woe economic assessment framework, could you streamline? Uh, could you possibly um, do away with? Uh, but still make sure that there is real rigour uh, in um, what projects get built. So um, I have to I have to say, uh, whole you don't have to wait long. Couple couple of weeks in Australia, and we'll have uh, a draft report out in the middle of September where we'll go through those issues in a, in a lot of depth. Oh, awesome. And just to pick up on your point before about scenario analysis, just a quick one. Do you think that the risks here are asymmetric? Do you think that the outcomes will be worse if transmission is late rather than a couple of years too early? 
Yeah, I think we definitely, um, the the base case here that we consider is what if the transmission's not there? Like, so, we, so we, we're definitely thinking about that when we're looking at the problem. It's not just assume if it's late, the current prices just continue on. We're definitely considering what happens if transmission's late. I think the thing with it is they're very long-lived assets. There's mm. a lot of them. And there's competition for the provision of the services in the terms of you're getting more large storage and you're getting more generation out there. But that said, uh, you know, you look at the integrated system plan, you look at the scale of the build, you look at uh, where it is in Australia, how much of it, and you need more transmission and you need it faster. I don't think anyone's disagreeing with that. The the third of the topics is nodal uh, pricing. Um, you talked about Australia's almost uniquely long, thin grid, like the amount of you know land we cover, but the the sparse uh, population, relatively speaking, um, and and so there is discussion of sharper locational price signals. Australia, it should be noted, actually does already have some location signals, uh, marginal loss factors, thermal grid curtailment, things like that. But this was something that that came out of the ESB proposal as a suggestion. Um, you know, my theory about this is a little bit is that, you know, if you were starting with a clean sheet of paper, as you said, and you knew you had to build, you know, gigawatts of renewables, you'd probably go down the nodal path because you'd, you'd want a locational signal. But as you progress and more of the stuff gets built and potentially you have more direct intervention in the form of reses to kind of control and, and manage the influx of gigawatts of renewables into a system, uh, arguably the arguments for nodal kind of diminish a little bit over time, I think. Um, I, mean, I suppose, again, a bit like capacity markets, what's your take on the pros and cons of, of nodal? Mm. And how do you think about it impacting existing assets where people have made decisions based on a certain set of rules versus future people who are who might benefit from sharper locational signals? Yeah, I... I think people are wound up on the sharper, sharper locational signal, and I think it's certainly super hot topic. And it's not even ESB; like it, it this access reform is what we call it in uh, the commission. It's been around for ages. We mm. we we've been pushing it, and to be honest, I think we could have done a far better job in explaining it uh, over the years. And we've got a lot of pushback on it. And I think that argument that you um, outline is really a good one to consider. It's that transition and implementation from the current system to any future system and mm. what you do about it. That said, I, pro- I probably strongly disagree with the fact that it's going to get better over time. Uh, again, have a look at the ISP and the absolute mm. scale of generation mm-hmm. and inside a res and outside a res, you've got a problem. And so um, uh, because people can free ride off your, off your renewable energy zone by building just outside it, um, how much uh, generation gets away into the main part of the system. So I think what the Energy Security Board has done a really good job on, though, is what I talked about earlier, is really explaining the problem. Because uh, when we started on this journey, people were just like, there is no problem and you, are, you, you people are crazy. And I think where the Energy Security Board has got to is a recognition from industry that there are, there are problems. There's two problems around congestion, uh, in the system, one is in the investment time frame. So you're making this choice to build your, you know, your wind farm, and you invest in it, and then three months later, you get another 17 projects that chew up your line. So how do you deal with that? And the mm. Energy Security Board's got a couple of models to deal with that. 
And then you've got a real-time issue for congestion and dispatch. And that's the one around, um, you know, sharper uh, price signals that is probably the most contested. And again, we've got buy-in now that that is a problem and uh, it's just the solution that we're working on. So I think that's really good progress. And John Cole from Edify's team, who again, I think was on your podcast previously, they came up with a, with a, a variation on this, which was a voluntary congestion relief market. So a new market like an ancillary services market, which uh, is, you know, fair play to John and the team. That's what you want from industry is them not Mm. just throwing stones at rule makers, but coming up with some solutions saying, actually, people know what ancillary markets are. This is not a big change and you can, you know, uh, participate in it if you want to. And it's the thing about that is um, getting that right is actually great for the transition because that will incentivize more storage in those renewable energy zones you talk about because they can take advantage of um, those uh, congestion signals and uh, charge their uh, storage where there's not congestion and and release it when there is. So I think VSB have done a good job in making a lot of headway on a very uh, contested reform and there's still still a way to go. Uh, But I, I just like to say I think they've done a good job in getting industry engaged in the problem. Yeah, absolutely. And it is increased. I mean, my understanding is it's being considered in the UK now. There's discussions across the EU. Most of the US markets are reasonably nodal. They kind of did that, you know, late 90s, early 2000s. So less contentious there. But as you say, it's prompted some strong responses. On the topic of getting stakeholder buy-in and, and having industry come along with you, I mean, you've got quite a long history of working with governments, both federal and state, and that means quite a lot more stakeholders than, for example, uh, in Great Britain, where, you know, once you get Ofgem and Bayes and the minister lined up, you can pretty quickly get a reform through. So on balance, do you think that the fact the NEM is a shared responsibility for state and federal government uh, produces better or worse outcomes for Australian consumers than if we're wholly managed at the federal level? Yeah, I love a question about federalism. This is like this is super nerdy, even even for me. Uh, yeah, I've 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 I've, I've worked um, at the federal level. I've worked in a state government in Australia, and I think it is it is a coming back. It's a very big country, and the reason you have a federal system usually is because it's big geographically, mm. and uh, it might seem simple just to say one answer, move quickly, but yeah. Energy is an essential service and you need buy-in across uh, the entire country. And um, in Australia, it's really those states that do service delivery. And the Commonwealth and the federal government's got a critically important role about thinking about the national interests and looking across the entire country. But uh, you get, I think, better longer-term outcomes um, uh, with uh, the involvement in all those states and territories and the Commonwealth government. Um, you also get the, the advantage of policy experimentation. So actually, mm. when I was in Queensland, one of the states here, we were always looking at what's happening in South Australia and going, what can we steal from them? Uh, mm. So it's like any kind of government model. It's got its strengths. It's got its weaknesses. Sometimes it can be frustrating. But if you know how to work it and you look around uh, and you're willing to do the hard yards, you can, I think, actually make really significant reform right across the system. Yeah, and I think that manifests itself in all sorts of ways, right? Everything from auction design for re- renewables, uh, uh, treatment of uh, batteries and, and, and those types of things. So, you know, it's certainly played out in Australia over the last couple of years. 
Uh, one more insider's perspective, perhaps, if you can if you can give it to us, Ben. I'm sure you've been to many of the energy ministers' forums uh, over the years. Uh, what's something that the people who are who are, who are in the industry but outside the tent of government? Uh, what's something that they should understand about the decision-making process that's going on when the various ministers from each of the jurisdictions meet? Yeah, uh, I have been to a lot. Um, I think, like, all of those ministers really want to get an outcome. I think that's the thing. I think if if people have a view that um, they're not interested in working together and getting an outcome, that I can just say that's not true. They're, they're really keen to make serious reform and it's a continuum like that those meetings are the apex of reform and mm. i think for industry stakeholders in australia getting involved in that and uh getting your views across on the reform agenda in a really constructive way uh about what you think should change is really really useful when i was in queensland we used to run and they still run i think industry forums in the lead up to those meetings and often mm. the minister would quote uh, what people were saying in those forums. So do not underestimate your voice if you engage in the process, right? Like, so that's that's the that's the call out, I would say, um, uh, that ministers are always listening. Uh, so get involved, uh, make a difference. It is, it, I do, you know, it's unique to Australia, I think, the fact that you can actually meet a lot of the energy ministers you know they are out and about and you might run into lily d'ambrosio at, at a function or you know mick Tavreni. it's it's a, a function of how small the industry is but great opportunities to have you know real impact and, and help shape the debate yeah and they all um, want to listen too i think yeah know? like they, they they genuinely do so i just i just think um and it's this the sector is better when people engage constructively in it. So it can be frustrating, I know, because sometimes people's own personal thing doesn't get across, but I say just just keep going. No, absolutely. One final question that we ask all, or I ask all uh, people who come on, who do you read or listen to in the energy space that you think is always good, thought-provoking, and really critically kind of relevant to your work as a, as a regulator? Yeah, no, that's a good question. Uh, so a few people, um, uh, some of which have been on your pod, I think. So definitely Tony Wood at Grattan. Uh, I know James mm. worked with Tony before, but I think Tony is always super interesting. Like I did work with Tony uh, like in the early thousands when he was at Clinton Foundation, and he's always super constructive on policy reform and really considered. Uh, Paul Simshauser, who, I don't know how he sleeps, churns out academic articles uh, all the time. <laughs> and again, when he was in AGL, I think was really thinking about industry's role in this being an essential service and not just uh, the company line. So I think Paul is always good to have a listen to. Uh, Lynn Gallagher at Energy Consumers Australia mm. is always good, um, always out there. And I think internationally, um, Feridun Suisachi, who's regularly putting out books um, from Molino Energy, they're always worth a read and, and super interesting. That's a, that's a great list. And particularly that last one, I'll, I'll have to dig up. Um, ben, thank you so much for your time today. We've covered a lot in 40 minutes. Uh, you're running what is definitely one of the busiest organisations in the Australian energy space. So we're very appreciative of your time. All the best and thanks again. Thanks so much, Hugo. Thanks, James. Thanks, Ben. That was Hugo Batten, Aurora's Managing Director for APAC, talking to Ben Barr, Chief Executive Officer of the Australian Energy Market Commission, and James Ha, Aurora's Market Lead in the Australian team. 
Do keep an eye on our podcast feed for more in-depth conversations with senior members of the energy industry. The best way to do this is to subscribe on whatever platform you use. Thanks for listening and goodbye.